Ladies and gentlemen, adjust your mirrors, fasten your seatbelts, and get geared up for the I-95 show, the best talk in the tri-state. Here's your host, Julian Coulter. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody, and welcome inside another exciting edition of the I-95 show. I am your host, Julian Coultry. We got a full docket, a full slate. It is finally that time of the year. It is here, folks, officially official. It is October 1st, which means that we have Major League Baseball playoffs. We have the NFL in full swing. We have National Hockey League action puck dropping this Friday, and then we have the start of NBA training camps. And across the I-95 era, that means you got the Flyers in full swing, you got the Devils, you got the Rangers, you got the Islanders, you got the Giants, you got the Jets, you got the Eagles, you got the Yankees, you got the Sixers, the Knicks, and the Nets. And the only teams sitting at home right now are the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Mets. And we are going to get to all of the exciting action because let's be quite honest, there is so much that we need to cover today. There's so much that we need to discuss happening inside the I-95 corridor as far as the top sports stories are concerned that I'm honestly wasting time right now just discussing with you what we have to talk about. And so without further ado, let me lay out how this is kind of going to go. We have to talk about what it means for the start of NBA training camp because there were some big stories. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant having their first conversations with the Brooklyn Nets media. The Sixers having their full core together after their big offseason. And the Nets looking, or and the Knicks looking what they can do with R.J. Barrett at the helm now. We got National Hockey League action tipping off at the start of the Friday which will be very, very interesting stuff. We'll see what sort of happens from that perspective. Devils, home opener, Rangers, Islanders, and the Flyers. And then, of course, we'll have to give you the NFL slate and everything that comes with that. But we will not be giving our picks today just because of how much we have to discuss from the standpoint of other things. So that means one thing, one thing only. That means what is going to start us off on this episode of the i-95 show and what is that well postseason baseball the new york yankees know who their opponent are they are ready for action and come friday at the just announced time of 707 which i love to see from the standpoint of playoff baseball earlier games not later games the new york yankees will be taking on the minnesota twins but before we can preview that game and give you my thoughts about how the Yankees will survive this postseason. we got to talk about how the Yankees got there. Obviously, opening day, if I had said to you that the New York Yankees would have 103 wins, second-best record in the American League, third-best record in baseball, you'd say to yourself, man, probably a really good year for New York. Aaron Judge probably hits like 50 home runs. Giancarlo probably around 50 or 60 maybe. Good contributions from Glaber Torres. Luis Severino, maybe a 20-game winner, and all in all, a high-quality, pumped-out 103 wins. I don't think anybody at the beginning of the year could have expected how it went down. And that was with every single person, pretty much, getting injured. 
It was a weird season to begin with from the point that it started, of course, right before the end of last year when Dede Gregorius winds up getting hurt. They announce after they're eliminated that he needs Tommy John surgery. And from that point on, pretty much every single player in the Yankees' starting opening day lineup got hurt. You had Gary Sanchez, who spent time on the IL. Luke Voigt spent time on the IL. Glaber Torres did not, but he had nagging injuries throughout the season. Didi, of course, out for a majority of it. The guy they picked up to play the spot, Tulowitzki, Troy Tulowitzki, of course, did not make it past the first couple of weeks post-opening day. Miguel Andujar gets hurt within the first couple of games of the season. He tries to make it back, and then, of course, he winds up getting a shoulder surgery, which has him out for the rest of the year. You had Aaron Hicks, who was down, Giancarlo Stanton, who was down, Aaron Judge, who was down, and then the guys who stepped up were the ones that no one expected. I'm talking Gio Urshela, Mike Talkman, Mike Ford, Clint Frazier, Cameron Maben, even Brett Gardner, who, let's be quite honest, the Yankees brought back, but I don't think anybody fully expected that the reason why he was going to be brought back and everything that was going to happen with it would play an easily contributable part on this season. But he was able to get the job done, and all in all, the Yankees were able to win. They had big moments. Who could forget Brett Gardner's grand slam? in April against the Boston Red Sox that really kind of put the Yankees on the path to be able to start winning games. That then sort of catalyst them to those back-to-back series sweeps against the San Francisco Giants and the LA Angels out in the West Coast, including that very impressive comeback versus LA that would lead to a victory for them. There were the home series wins against Houston and against the Cleveland Indians and against Tampa Bay middle of the summer that were able to give the Yankees a nice little bit of a cushion and to build up their wins. There was the London series against Boston where, look, you want to talk just absolute nerve-wracking contests over the course of the season. Those Boston series were them, but they were able to go out there and win those games, and they were able to do what was necessary in order to give themselves two victories against Boston. They competed. They got good production. Their bullpen was lights out. And the replacement guys, no matter who went down, continued to step up. Because Gio Urshela was the man at the beginning of it. And then you saw Mike Talkman become the man. And then Cameron Mabin was the guy. And then he went down with an injury. And then it was Talkman again. And then when Voight was hurt, it was Mike Ford. And then Ed, Eddie Encarnacion goes down. And they get DH contributions from everybody and their mother. And then enough cannot be said by the one guy who pretty much was a constant throughout the majority of the season outside of a few games missed here and there because of some Knicks, and that was DJ LeMahieu. And I will fully admit that the ins and outs of this season coming into it with the offseason, I think a lot of people were suspect. Everybody wanted them to get Manny Machado. Everybody wanted them to get Bryce Harper. And the one guy that they signed was DJ LeMahieu. And I don't think anybody was excited for that signing. But you look now on October 1st, the season over, the postseason here, and DJ LeMahieu bats over 320, drives in over 100 runs, has 100 runs scored, and was all in all a very, very good contribution for this Yankees team. And even though he probably won't get any MVP votes, even though he should, he was the Yankees MVP by far. They do not do what they were able to do this year 
without DJ LeMahieu's defense at second base, third base, and at times first base. Without what he did with his bat, what he was able to do from the leadoff spot, and the leadership that he was able to bring. And his two-strike, two-out RBI approach will be as good to the Yankees as what we saw a guy like J.D. Martinez do for the Red Sox last year. So it will be interesting to see. But for the most part, the New York Yankees were able to survive thanks to him as well as the other plethora of replacement players that were able to contribute for them ever since the beginning of the season happened. And we were all complaining in April about how the Yankees weren't beating bad teams and they weren't able to get consistent victories and everybody was getting injured. Which brings us now to the playoffs. And look, I will admit that I have my concerns because for the New York Yankees, the way this season ended was not as beneficial as you would have liked. James Paxton leaving his start last Friday because of uh, a little bit of tightness in his left glute. You hope that he is okay and that his butt problems aren't a problem for him in the postseason. You don't like that they lost both games in heartbreaking fashion to Tampa. Obviously, the division was already wrapped up at that point, but Tampa was fighting for the wild card. You would have loved to have played spoiler for them and steal some of their confidence. You do not like at all the fact that they were not able to win the series against Texas. In fact, they lost back-to-back games and the season versus Texas. You don't love the fact that despite them being able to compete for home field advantage in the playoffs, that they really did not give their best effort against Houston and L.A. in their last couple of series. They, of course, will finish a few games behind both for home field advantage against them in the ALCS versus Houston and the World Series versus the Dodgers. They could, of course, get home field advantage in the World Series should anybody else make it outside of L.A. That means Washington or Atlanta or Milwaukee or St. Louis or whoever it might be. They will have the opportunity to have home field advantage versus them should it get to that point. But outside of that, the Yankees have a lot to be encouraged from. Because James Paxton, who I have ripped on this show before and have not always loved at times, pitched extremely well down the stretch. I think he wound up finishing the season like 10-0 and with a 2.1 ERA or something like that. Masahiro Tanaka, he's starting to seemingly figure things out. Luis Severino is back. He doesn't seem to be that hurt. And in fact, he was pitching very, very well. He'll be a factor, I think, in the rotation of the postseason. And the old cliche is, of course, the Yankees are getting an ace. That was their deadline deal. You hate that idea. But quite frankly, if they're able to bring that firepower and that sort of success, thanks to Luis Severino, then you're in very good shape. And the injuries that they sort of sustained, I would say, two and a half weeks ago, with Gary Sanchez going down with that groin injury and the oblique injury to Edwin Encarnacion, it seems like those two are going to be worked out. Which brings us now to what do they do in the playoffs? Well, they're going to be taking on the Minnesota Twins, which is sure to be a big-time matchup for them. In fact, Minnesota is probably the only team all year long that competed with the Yankees offensively. And we can remember those three games out in Minnesota, probably around the 
middle of July, in which the Yankees rotation was just getting absolutely demolished. And the games were like 14-13. One of the games wound up going into extra innings, and the Twins had the bases loaded, but it was a gigantic catch from Aaron Hicks that wound up sealing the win for the New York Yankees. They wound up winning that series two games to three, but it was a very, very interesting series. And look, the Yankees have dominated the Twins. There's no way about it. Dating back to the early 2000s, the Yankees have dominated any series that they have played against Minnesota. And we all remember back in 2009 when the Yankees wound up going to the World Series and winning it 10 years ago, they went through Minnesota in that series. First game they lost at home. Second game they were on the verge of losing before A-Rod hit that big home run. Then, of course, Teixeira walked it off. Then they wound up going to Minnesota. They wound up winning. Actually, they won game one at home. So they wound up sweeping it. So they wound up winning game one at home and then winning game three on the road in Minnesota. And they've dominated Minnesota ever since. Doesn't matter the series. Doesn't matter where. They have had Minnesota's number. So it makes sense if you're a little bit weary of the facts or worrisome of the fact that, you know, Minnesota's due. And offensively this year, they led the league in home runs and they led the league in RBIs and they were up there in on-base percentage and up there in slugging and up there in OPS. And that them and the Houston Astros and the Yankees offenses are pretty much all able to cancel each other out because of how many home runs they can hit and how many runs they can drive in and all that good stuff. But you have to be encouraged by one thing, and that is probably more than any other team in the playoffs the Yankees will have the pitching advantage over Minnesota. Their starters, in my opinion, are miles ahead better. You know, Jake Odorizzi does not scare me. Michael Pineda is not going to be there because of his suspension. The rest of their starting rotation doesn't exactly strike fear into the hearts of millions. But the Yankees, on the other hand, have three very viable top-of-the-rotation starters I mean, they're not Justin Verlander, they're not Garrett Cole, but you are getting really solid production with Masahiro Tanaka, with Luis Severino, and with James Paxton. So if those three guys can give the Yankees what the Yankees should be able to get, and that is consistent and top-of-the-line rotation talent, then the Yankees will do the rest. Then between Giancarlo Stanton and Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez and Eddie Encarnacion and DJ LeMahieu and Glaber Torres and Didi Gregorius and Luke Voigt and Brett Gardner and whoever it might be that's in the starting lineup, the Yankees will have some talent. Now, they haven't announced their postseason rosters yet, and it will be interesting to sort of contemplate what it is. Seems as though the Yankees will probably carry 12 pitchers. And you have to assume those 12 pitchers will be, of course, the three that I mentioned, Paxton, Masahiro Tanaka, and Severino. You also assume that they're going to carry Jay Happ and CC Sabathia for bullpen pieces, but also in case something happens and they need somebody to start a game. You're also going to have Britton. You're going to have Chapman. You're going to have Adovino. You're going to have Canely. You're going to have Green. So the last two spots of this of this bullpen and these pitchers most likely in my opinion probably get made up of Jonathan Wise and Luis Sessa long men guys who they can also bring in who have some pretty good stuff 
And just in case the Yankees need something, those will be the guys that they wind up going out there and trying to get to go and trying to get to have something happen. So those are their pitchers. And then as far as the roster is concerned offensively, well, this one's pretty self-explanatory. You're going to have Gary catching. Your first base is going to be Voight or any combination of Voight, LeMahieu, or Eddie Encarnacion. But let's say for around the horn purposes, it's your catcher, Gary, first base, Voight, second base, Glaber, third base, Didi, your third baseman is Ju Urshela, your outfield left to right is Giancarlo, Gardner, and Aaron Judge, and then your bench is going to be DJ LeMahieu, who of course is going to play in one of the infield spots, most likely playing first base if Gio's at third, or playing third base if Gio's on the bench, and then Eddie Encarnacion and Austin Romine and Tyler Wade. So those are your spots. That's who you're going to be seeing. Those are going to be the guys that are going to be helping you out. And the question just becomes, who are you going to be put in, putting in there? Defensively, you go Gio at third base, and you go LeMahieu at first base. Offensively, you go probably... I mean, I honestly still go Gio just because of how good Gio has been for them this year. But I think it could be up for discussion. Any way you round it, the way that Luke Voigt has sort of played as of late, I think he's in a 1-for-32 slide. You probably relegate him to the bench to at least start the series. If not, maybe even go with Mike Ford, which is a debate that I could have with you on Twitter. And if you want to, you can hit me up at Julian Coultry on Twitter, and we can discuss it, but that's what I would expect. So now it comes down to this. What is my gut reaction? My gut reaction is I'm scared to face the Twins because I believe in do, and I do not want to see the Yankees lose in a first-round series versus Minnesota. That said, the Yankees have home field advantage. They have three very good pitchers. They have the best bullpen in baseball, and their offense was second in most major categories to Minnesota, if not first. They should be able to win this series. They might not win it in three like they did in 09. They might not win it in four. Heck, they might have to have it be five games to be able to dispose of Minnesota. But they should be able to beat them. They should be able to outslug them. And if they're able to get any halfway decent contributions from their starting rotation, then they will be able to win and have a date with Houston or if the Yankees are lucky, and I'm sure they would love this, a date with either Oakland or Tampa Bay. And that's where the wild card game is. That game will be played uh, on Tuesday, I believe, if not Wednesday. And then, of course, Friday, 7.07, game one. Saturday, 5.07, game two for those two games for the New York Yankees in the Major League Baseball playoffs. When we come back here inside the I-95 show, we will go around the horn, let you know what wound up happening in football this week. Then a little bit later on in the program, we got the start of the NHL season. We got the start of the NBA season. All that good stuff coming up next here inside the I-95 show. That's right, folks. It is playoff season, which means we get to jam to the entire tracks, bringing us in and out 
of our segments here, Yankees related. And this one, if you are familiar with WFAN in New York, Sports Talk Radio, something that I, of course, grew up with, you know that this is the theme song for the New York Yankees. It is called Here Comes the Yankees. I don't think a lot of people realize that the New York Yankees not only have a theme song, but they also had a mascot back in the 70s. Uh, Educate yourself. Look it up. It is very, very interesting. And he got booed and cursed at and criticized, and then they eventually cut him. But this is also one of the remnants of the 70s, a very fun and intriguing New York Yankees theme song called Here Come the Yankees. So we're giving you the Yankees hits this one because, of course, they are the big playoff team in the I-95 area, their first game on Friday. As for football, you had two teams in action this week, and you had one team on a bye week, and that was the Jets, which means that they could not lose, which, of course, was very good news for anybody who was a Jet fan. For the Giants, you had a game versus the Redskins at home. And for the Philadelphia Eagles, you wound up having a game on the road against Green Bay. We will start with Philadelphia because at the end of the day, they were the first team. And this was as big of a must-win game for Philly as you could have gotten. Because if they had lost, all of a sudden they would have been 1-3. and three. They would have had to now start winning even more games and be up against the eight ball, so to speak. And yeah, this week they play the Jets, which even if they had lost last week versus Green Bay, probably would have been an easy victory for them. It's a lot harder to go and be two and three than three and two, where you're over 500 versus playing catch up for the rest of the season. So the Philadelphia Eagles were benefited by the fact that They had a must-win game early on that they were able to get up for, especially on Thursday Night Football. And man, oh man, did they get up for this one. I think all season long we've been looking for the Philadelphia Eagles offensive line to take charge and allow their running game to get going. And this was the game for it. It was easy to see from the moment that it started that the Packers defensive line was not able to compete with the Philadelphia Eagles offensive line, and it showed. You had Miles Sanders running for 77 yards. You had Jordan Howard, who I will get to in just a second, but he wound up having three touchdowns, two running, one passing on the day. He was phenomenal in his contest. And then, of course, you had Darren Sproles and Carson Wentz and everybody else who got an opportunity to run with the ball, taking full advantage of it in order to do that. And It starts with Jordan Howard because I'll be the first one to admit that sometimes you will forget that Howard, since coming into the league, is the third best rusher at his position. He is a good runner. And he split time in Chicago with Tariq Cohen. And then, of course, Chicago just wound up shipping him out and not really caring about him that much. But if given the touches... I think Jordan Howard is somebody who can be very, very good. And it wasn't until this game that it seemed like the Philadelphia Eagles were ready, willing, and able to start using him in the offense. Now, that doesn't mean that Miles Sanders is bad, given the fact that he got 77 yards in this contest, but Howard looked electric. He was breaking tackles. He was running hard. He scored two touchdowns on the ground and then caught another one for the air. And he was as good as you could have hoped. And for the Philadelphia Eagles, who coming into this game were missing offensive weapons, we know that Deshaun Jackson had been hurt, Alshon Jeffrey had been banged up, 
Nelson Aguilar had caught some balls and was very consistent the last few games, but of course always has his ups and downs with the season. It served the Eagles to be able to get something going on offense. And Jordan Howard was the spark that they definitely could have needed. Now, obviously you look at this contest, if it wasn't for a big stop made by the defense on a play that was pretty much almost identical to the missed run ball in the Super Bowl between New England and Seattle, the Eagles probably lose this game to Green Bay. It goes without saying that their defense needs to be better. Now, the Eagles did wind up making a trade on Monday evening. It was certainly not one that was going to move the needle, and it really doesn't help their linebacker, or it really doesn't help their cornerback situation at all. But they did trade Jonathan Cyper into Atlanta for Duke Riley. They also wound up getting a couple of picks back. It was uh, officially Jonathan Cyper in a 2027 round pick to Atlanta for linebacker Duke Riley in a 2026 round pick. We know in the NFL, trades don't really move the needle. You're never really going to get some giant ones. I mean, this year you did have the Micah Fitzpatrick trade that wound up going for a first rounder. And there are rumors, and every single Philadelphia Eagles fan wants these rumors to be true, that Jalen Ramsey gets traded, and that would probably cost the Eagles a first round pick. But outside of that, trades don't really do anything as far as gigantic improvements are concerned. Now, the Eagles obviously will probably need to make a trade, and this does help out their special teams unit, but it will be yet to see whether or not it actually is something that makes an overall arching, comp- uh, you know, big, big time, you know, impact on, on everything that they are doing. But that's what they wound up doing, and that stop was just phenomenal on the goal line for them. But cornerback-wise, that got torched. And look, you could see from the moment that that game started that the Philadelphia Eagles do not have the sort of talent in their cornerbacks and safety position that is going to be necessary for them to continue to compete as far as this season is concerned. Because Devontae Adams wound up destroying them from the opening kickoff. He was all over the backfield. He was scoring. He was going through. He was going back. He was catching balls. He was getting deep passes. Aaron Rodgers was picking them apart. And it wasn't for a couple of inabilities to score late in the game for Green Bay. And it was, if it wasn't for the fact that Green Bay missed some wide-open receivers early on and had to settle for field goals rather than touchdowns, they probably blow Philadelphia out just because of how bad the Eagles' defense was here. So it goes without saying that they will probably need to improve those things. We'll see whether or not they will get the opportunity to do so. But the Eagles' schedule will lend itself to playing some high-powered offenses. And when it really boils down to it, if you look at their upcoming stretch, outside of the Jets... They're going to be playing some teams that have some pretty decent wide receivers. On the road in Minnesota, their passing offense right now, the Vikings, has been awful. But they do have Adam Thielen, and they do have Stephon Diggs, and they do have Kirk Cousins, who eventually might figure it out. So that could be one where the Eagles secondary could suffer. The Cowboys on the road, Amari Cooper was shut down yesterday outside of having a last-second catch that wound up having me lose in fantasy by .2 points. But that I digress. Uh, that's one you're going to have to look out for because, of course, Dak Prescott, if they can set up the run, will be able to throw to Amari Cooper. The Bills, 
maybe not so much as far as an offensive standpoint are concerned. But then outside of that, you have the Bears, who Mitchell Trubisky hasn't always been able to throw, but they have had some offensive wide receivers. The Patriots will pick them apart. And then the Giants twice, who, as we'll transition them just a second, could get to the point where they have a very terrifying offensive tack, which now brings me to what the New York Giants were able to do in their game against the Redskins. And look, this is what you need to fully comprehend about the New York Giants. They should be 1-3. A hundred percent. There's no way around it. But last year, the Giants had so many games in the fourth quarter with two minutes left that they were not able to hold on to. They turned into losses. That it is only fair that you don't judge them and you realize that football sometimes is football and as much as the Giants should be 1-3, and three, they are 2-2. Two and two. And that is because they played a Redskins team that you can make a case that outside of Miami is the worst team in football. They're not good. Jay Gruden has no idea what he wants to do over there. It doesn't seem like he has really any interest in playing Dwayne Haskins. Though he played him in this contest just pretty much due to the fact that he needed to because I guess it came out a little bit after the game that Casey Keenum was hurt. Who knows? Not really sure. Either way, they're messed up. Their defense is that good. They were without their number one option, Terry McCall, in the last, last game against the Giants. So they're pretty much doomed from the start. And then you factor in the fact that Daniel Jones played good, not great. Daniel Jones played how I kind of expected his first game to go. 235 passing yards, touchdown, couple of interceptions. Wasn't great, wasn't bad either. Helped the Giants win the game, made some plays with his legs. But that was good enough against a bad Redskins team. And give credit to Wayne Gallman. First game without Saquon Barkley, he put up very Saquon Barkley numbers. Had a rushing touchdown, had a receiving touchdown, had about 50 yards receiving, had about 66 yards rushing. Maybe Saquon has a little bit more rushing and receiving yards, but at the end of the day, he wound up getting two scores and helped contribute to the Giants' win. And the same thing goes for the rest of the receiving core. They had a good, good showing from another Sterling Shepard performance. And a very solid, not great, but solid day from Evan Ingram to try and get that job done as well. So the New York Giants were able to do what they needed to do. And that was win games and prove to everybody that as bad as the Redskins are, the Giants can still take advantage. And that also includes on defense. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Janoris Jenkins, granted against a very bad Redskins team, had a very good bounce back effort. The Jabril Peppers, who, as we've talked about on the show before, has not proven enough to prove that he was worth Odell Beckham Jr. He wound up having a pick six, his first of his career. And then the rest of the Giants' defense was good. The only negative spot on the day was Ryan Connolly, who has been a revelation as a fifth-round pick this past year, just doing a really solid job as a defender wound up suffering a non-contact injury. MRI wound up proving that it was a torn ACL. So it seems as though he will probably be out for the season. You don't like to see that. It is really a big bummer for the Giants. They will now need to look elsewhere as far as linebacking help is concerned. And for the Giants, who really, at the end of the day, have zero help 
in their defensive schemes because of the rookies and their just inability to make a stop at times could not afford another injury, but they wound up picking one up here. So all in all for the Giants, a good win, and now this is where the test comes. Because if you are a Giant fan, you are now on the point in your mind where you think it is okay for you to look ahead. And look, I'm not saying it isn't, because if you look at the Giants' schedule over the next eight weeks, they are given opportunities to win games. But it all starts this upcoming week at home against Minnesota. Because Minnesota has not been that good. And there have been a lot of back-and-forth shots between Adam Thielen and Kirk Cousins. But all it takes is Kirk Cousins or Adam Thielen to have one unbelievable game against the Giants secondary, which, let's be honest, is a real possibility, and the Vikings offense could figure it out. That's all it takes. One good game. Now, obviously, the Giants are at home. That is a huge benefit given the fact that if they were on the road in Minnesota at that building, you would not think that Daniel Jones would perform as well. And the Vikings have a really good defense, and Mike Zimmer knows how to call those games superbly. But Daniel Jones is at home, so the benefits are to him, and it does put him in a little bit better of a position to succeed. Then you have the short week. You're on the road versus New England. you got to assume that the Giants probably lose that game. New England has just been so good, and rookie quarterbacks against Bill Belichick are always losers. They never perform well. Then your home versus the Cardinals. That should be a win for the Giants. They should be able to run all over the Cardinals, and rumor has it that Saquon Barkley thinks that he can beat his diagnosis. Originally, it was four to seven weeks. He's already out of the walking boot. Look, if I had to target an early return for Saquon Barkley... Why not October 20th, week seven? Because that is now three weeks from now, and the Giants have that early game of Thursday against the Patriots where then Saquon gets 10 days to rest and come back. If not, maybe the Lions on the road. And then after that, you have the Cowboys and the Jets. So, look, is it okay to dream that that the Giants could get to the point where they need to go? Yes. It's completely, completely realistic to believe that. But what they need to do is they need to win versus Minnesota and then let the chips fall as it may. Because if they win versus Minnesota and lose versus New England, they are now 3-3. Three and three. And then you can hopefully, and you can conceivably see them go 4-3 and three versus the Cardinals, 5-3 and three versus the Lions, 5-4 and four against the Cowboys, and then 6-4 and four against the Jets. And then you're at the point in which you let the rest of your season play as it is. And that includes two games versus the Dolphins and the Redskins. Dolphins game at home, Redskins game on the road, and then some divisional games. So if I'm a Giant fan, I just want to see meaningful games as we approach the home stretch. And if they can do that, then they are in a lot better of a position than I think anybody gave them credit for at the start of this year. Last but not least, you have the New York Jets. They're off this past week. It's pretty much just housekeeping for them this week as they take on the Philadelphia Eagles in a game that, as I already mentioned, the Eagles should be able to win easily. Does not seem right now as though Sam Darnold is going to play. We know the mono issue has been a big thing. 
lot of people thought that after the bye week five, he might be ready. But according to Adam Gase on Monday, he is going to come back, but he will be doing non-contact things, and he hasn't even really lifted or participated in drills. And it pretty much, according to him, was if the game was to be played either Tuesday or Wednesday, there's no way that he would be ready. And that leads me to believe that even with the game being on Sunday, there is no way that he is going to be ready. That's just it. The fact of the matter is, Mono is too unpredictable of a disease, and he is too important to this franchise for them to just sort of be like, eh, all right, let's go. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. That's the way that it is. The Giants are going to be upset about that. Or, sorry, the Jets are going to be upset about that. Their fan base is going to be upset about that. But that's how it falls. And for the New York Jets, he's the most important person. And if you got Falk, you're probably going to lose anyway. And that's a big bummer. Because then the only thing you can really do is just hand off the ball to Le'Veon Bell. And the Eagles will be expecting that. But that's all you can really afford to do. Other injury news for them, it seems as though C.J. Mosley probably going to be out as well. But Quinn and Williams looks as though he will be on track to play. So for that matchup between the Jets and the Eagles this upcoming Sunday should be a fun one. And we'll see sort of how the things sort of fall into place for the two franchises. That's the three games to look out for the I-95 area. It will be very fun to see how everything falls. Like I said, not doing my picks for this week because we have a lot to talk about in the next segment. But when we come back, we'll talk hoops, we'll talk hockey, and all that good stuff coming up next here inside the On95 Show. Welcome back here inside the I-95 show. I'm your host, Julian Coultry. It is not Mariana Rivera, but it is Enter Sandman leading me in. And we are technically closing this one out. This will be our last segment that isn't the toll booth, though maybe that was a little bit of a stretch as far as the use of Enter Sandman is concerned or anything of the sort. I probably honestly could have played it a little bit early or a little bit later in the show, maybe to close this out going into... um, uh, close us out going into the toll booth. But you know what? This is what we picked. This is what I put together. And that's sort of the way that it goes. So as we move on here inside the I-95 show, I mentioned it at the top of the program, October is the sweetest month of the year for sports. Outside of maybe April, where you have the national championship game for uh, the NCAA, where you have the start of baseball season, where you have hockey playoffs and basketball playoffs. October is it because you have the start of the NBA year. Everything is fresh and new. You have the start of the National Hockey League season. Same thing as the NBA season. You have October playoffs for baseball, which is some of the best in sports. And then you have the NFL season, which is in full swing. By that point, you have weeks four, five, six, and seven, which is really where you separate the pretenders and the contenders and everything from that space. And I mentioned basketball and I mentioned hockey. And this year, maybe more than any other year, the storylines inside of the I-95 area are off the charts. 
And believe it or not, I'm going to start with hockey. And the reason why is because you can make a valiant case for every single one of the New York area I-95 teams to make the playoffs. I'm sorry, Philadelphia Flyers fans, you might want to cover your ears because the fact is there really is not a good shot of the Flyers making the playoffs. Doesn't look as they're though they'll have as much success, I think, as what I would predict the three I-95 area teams in the New York area to do. But you look at all three teams and you say to yourself, when the puck drops this weekend, why won't all three teams be solid? The New Jersey Devils, maybe more than any of the teams in the I-95 area, put themselves in a position to compete this year which is so crucial given the fact that they want to re-sign Taylor Hall and prove to him that they have a winning culture. And they have the pieces to do it. They won the draft lottery this past year and, of course, drafted Jack Hughes, who everybody has raved about and has said he's one of the people that will change the direction of this franchise. A top-flight center. They have Nico Heischer, another top-flight center, who they also drafted first overall. They trade for P.K. Subban, who, yeah, he's been in the league a while, but from a defensive standpoint, he's better than anybody that the Devils have on defense. So he's going to be playing big-time minutes and is going to contribute. They took a flyer on Wayne Simmons. They brought back some of their talent that they have. Taylor Hall should be healthy. They have Kyle Palmieri still. And Corey Schneider, I do think, is sort of built for possibly a back. Uh, a return sort of bounce back year. Only time will tell if that happens, but if he's able to bring that sort of talent, and if he's not, but Mackenzie Blackwood is, then all of a sudden you have a Devils team that went from winning the draft lottery this past year because of how bad that they were to potentially being a playoff team. Then you factor in the New York teams, the fact that the New York Islanders made it the second round of the playoffs last year, They have the same coaching staff led by Barry Trotz. They have the same talent up front led by Matthew Barzell. They still have their captain, Anders Lee. He didn't bolt like Jonathan Tavares last year. Defensively, they're still going to bring that talent. And, of course, we all remember that last year the Islanders had the best goals against average in hockey. We'll see whether or not they'll be able to bring that sort of talent now that they've parted ways with some of their goaltending. But for the most part, they have the talent to be able to make it to the playoffs again. And then the Rangers, of course, have the second overall pick in the playoffs this year. And they wound up going with Capo Caco, who in the World Juniors was just as good. So when it comes down to what the Devils, the Rangers, and the Islanders can do this year, do not be surprised if when the dust settles, you have the New York Rangers, the New York Islanders, and the New Jersey Devils all in the playoffs. And you know what? There'll be reason to have that sort of success. There are, I think, a lot more storylines for the Devils this year, given the offseason moves that they made, given the fact that they traded some draft picks and Steve Santini, who actually got cut this year, uh, cut this past week and put on waivers by Nashville, to Nashville for P.K. Subban, given the fact they have Jack Hughes, given the fact that Taylor Hall and his contract and that situation of whether or not they will have to do what the Islanders didn't do with John DeBears and trade him away, or if they'll be able to resign him. Those are all questions, but the fact is that the New Jersey Devils 
will be exciting, as will the Rangers and as will the Flyers. As for the Devils' opening schedule, well, this weekend there are two games back-to-back and they'll have the opportunity to try and do something with it. At home for their home opener against the Jets, and then they will be on the road against Buffalo on Saturday the 5th. Both of those games, 7 o'clock tip-offs. As for the Islanders, their opening weekend schedule gets you to it right now. They will have their first game on the 4th against a I-95 area team that is all the way down the I-95 area corridor. That's the Washington Capitals at home at the, I believe it will be the Barclays Center. Let me check on that for you right now. Uh, It will actually be the Nassau Coliseum. So it will be at the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. I think there's only actually 23 or 22 of the 41 home games this year. So a little less than half, maybe a little more than half uh, at the Barclays Center. All the rest of them will be at the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. But the real question will be, if they make the playoffs, will they have to go back to the Barclays Center? Because you could tell from the first series to the second series for the Islanders last year that not being at the Barclays Center played a big contributing factor. Uh, And then their second game will be at home versus the Jets on Sunday. That's at 7 o'clock puck drop and then last but not least the rangers we'll look at them right now for the new york area teams and then get to the flyer schedule rangers schedule for hockey their opening weekend schedule will be the fifth saturday on the road against the senators and then they have a game on the third uh so they'll open up earlier than the islanders and the devils their home opener at msg will be saturday or will be thursday the third of october at seven o'clock and the last but not least the flyers get you their opening schedule their first game will be friday at two o'clock in the afternoon so two o'clock game versus the blackhawks at home and then their next game isn't until wednesday when they take on the devils so they will be behind a little bit the other i-95 area teams as far as their opening games but devils flyers should be a good one from the wells fargo center on wednesday the second game of the season for Philly, third game of the year for the New Jersey Devils. And finally, let's transition out of hoops because for the three teams in the I-95 area, this is as good as it's going to get for contests this year. We know what happened in free agency. The Brooklyn Nets, they got the big prize. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, that's what Brooklyn has now. For the Sixers, it was about the splash, but not the big splash. Getting Josh Richardson and getting Al Horford and rounding out the rest of their team, bringing back Tobias Harris, doing what needed to be done to ensure themselves that they can do what needs to be done. And then, of course, you have the New York Knicks, who really not that exciting. They got R.J. Barrett. Everybody thought they were going to get Zion. Everybody thought they were going to be able to get Kyrie and KD. But they didn't. But now, kind of for the first time ever, they actually have to stick to their guns and stick to their game plan and do what's necessary and build through the draft and build through good free agency signings and things of the sort. So, you know, that's not bad for the Knicks. But the real main storylines are about the Knicks and the, are about the Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. And we will start with the Nets because, of course, they're the ones with the shiny new toy. And even though KD probably won't play this year, and if you listen to what Kyrie said during his press conference, which was that nobody looked out for him and Kyrie's going to look out for him and make sure he does not come back to the court until he's 
It seems as though that KD won't be back, but the fact is they will still be exciting. Because this is a Nets team that has unlimited promise. Kenny Atkins, as head coach, got rave reviews from KD. Karl Marx, putting this together from a free agency standpoint, did an unbelievable job. And if Kyrie can return to form and... In his press conference again, it seemed as though he's very apologetic about how things ended in Boston and just that that wasn't the spot for him. If he returns to form, then you're in a really good spot. They're talented. They bring the heat. They're much more than just Kyrie. We know what they have with guys like Karius LeVert and Spencer Dinwiddie and the rest of the talent that they have from an offensive and defensive standpoint. But they should be able to challenge. Now look, without KD, where do I really rank the Brooklyn Nets? I mean, my heart says that they're with Kyrie a little bit better than what Miami probably is with Dwayne Wade. I don't think they're anywhere on the level of Giannis and Milwaukee. I don't think they're anywhere on the level of the Philadelphia 76ers. I don't think they're honestly maybe even on the level of what Kawhi was last year with him and Kyle Lowry and the Raptors. I think they're a distant 5-6 with Kyrie at the helm that turns into a top-of-the-line one once KD is there. But KD probably doesn't play this year. And therefore, I don't think you can really look to the Nets as being title contenders just yet. As for the Philadelphia 76ers, look, you know me. You know I'm a big Sixers fan. You know that I'm all in it on Sixers Twitter. You know that I lose my mind every single game. You know that I love, 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 love to slurp off the team. But for me to go out there today and to say that the Philadelphia 76ers should be considered the favorite over the Bucks and anybody else in the East is not lunacy. It isn't. And yeah, am I hopped up? Am I high on the idea of that picture that I saw of that starting five with JoJo and Al Horford and Josh Richardson and Ben and Tobias Harris? Yeah, I'm a little jacked up about that. Maybe I'm blowing my load a little bit. And maybe I'm buying into the fact that Ben Simmons pretty much said if he sees an open three, he's going to shoot it. Or buying into the fact that he said he didn't even love basketball the last two years, but now he does love basketball, and the dude was an all-star last year. Or maybe I'm motivated by the fact that Joel Embiid is going to use that Kawhi Leonard three over him in the second round of the playoffs to turn that into the Sixers going to the finals. But regardless of what it is, the Sixers are a phenomenally built team from their top five. The addition of Al Horford, you could make a case, was the best depth starting lineup move that any team in the NBA made this year. It's not the gigantic move of acquiring a superstar like Anthony Davis for LA, the Lakers, or acquiring... Paul George and Kawhi Leonard out West. But it it solidified the already good, if not great, starting pair of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. 
And it took away the only guy in the East that could realistically guard Joel Embiid. And it allows the Sixers so much range with their big men now that they can do whatever they want when playing a guy like Giannis. Then factor in the fact that Josh Richardson is a very good complementary player in this starting lineup. And Tobias Harris will finally get the opportunity over 82 games to hopefully be able to play the style of contest that we all want to see. Sixers are going to be good, folks. Their bench lacks a little bit, and I am missing the hell, and I'm going to miss the hell, out of J.J. Redick. And I wish Landry Shamit didn't get traded, though obviously you still have Tobias. They're missing some sharpshooters from three. They could stand to gain some more deep threats. But the fact of the matter is, that's always something you can go for at the trade deadline and get guys on veteran minimum buyouts and that sort of stuff. So I'm not too worried about that. I think the Sixers are going to be good, and I'm not just saying it. When we come back here inside the On95 show, one quick little point on an ode to a certain day Coming up next, you're inside the I-95 show. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out at Brooklyn. Now I'm down in Tribeca, right next to the Narrow. But I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra. And since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Yeah, they love me everywhere. Welcome back one final time. You're inside the I-95 show. Yes, I complained about my inability to go with Enter Sandman to close this out. But instead, we are going with the 2009 New York Yankees World Series Anthem. A little uh, Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z love the Yankees to have that parading in the Canyon of Heroes and get that opportunity to go and enjoy all that and everything that that brings. So hopefully that the Yankees use this anthem when they win in 2019, 10 years later. And it is also time for that part of the show. It is time for the toll booth. And ironically enough, this is the 50th episode of this podcast, which also happens to be being recorded on International Podcast Day. So it's small. It's not really that meaningful to some people, I guess, or maybe it is, but I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you. Whether or not you listen to this all at once, whether it's just segments you pick and choose, whether it's the drive to work, whether it's the subway, whether it's the bike whether it's the whatever mode of transportation you listen to it on, whether it's on your computer, whether it's on your cell phone, whether it's on your laptop, whatever it is. Thank you for listening to the I-95 show. Thank you for being a part of these last 50 episodes. Thank you for putting up with the little bit of a delay that we had in between doing episodes 48, 49, and now 50, uh, and the first 46, 47 episodes of the show that we did Thank you for everything that you've been able to do and everything that you've done to help me want to keep putting this out. Because the fact of the matter is, when I first decided to do this podcast, I just kind of was like, why? And then I realized that, you know what, podcasts are the wave of the future. and People love listening to something and having it be a part of their day and having their opinions shared or, or something to debate with or something to discuss on a varying viewpoint. And 
for me, getting to discuss sports on this podcast daily is very fun. It's very enjoyable. And it's something I love to do. And even if I get one listener where I get 100,000 listeners, getting the opportunity to hear everybody talk and discuss and be a part of all these events is something that really I love having and I love doing. And when my friends or my family or people I don't even know that listen to the podcast tell me that they liked it or they agreed with it, what I said, or they disagreed with it, or they didn't really love my opinion here, or they absolutely thought I was completely off base, that means you listened and that was good for me. And the podcast industry is always going to be changing and it's always going to be new and unique and and kind of far-fetched, but also kind of fun. And so from that standpoint, you know, I hope it keeps changing, but I hope I get, get keep I get to keep getting the opportunity to record new and fun and exciting podcasts and, you know, give you guys the opportunity to listen. So from that standpoint, like I said, I just want to say thank you. And it's been 50 episodes and I can't wait to the next 50. That's going to do it for us inside this edition of the I-95 show. As always, you can listen to our podcast each and every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and our home base, SoundCloud, as well as at any place that podcasts are listened to on the World Wide Web. Next week, we'll bring you another exciting edition. We try and drop it each and every week for you. But if you want, go to the page, hit subscribe, give us a like, give us some comments. You know I'm always interested to hear everything you have to talk about. And you can follow me julian coultry on my official twitter page at julian coultry or on my facebook page at julian and coultry if you want to keep up with the discussion and tell me what your thoughts on the episode were. until next time folks i am your host julian coultry we'll catch you later